Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, this morning. Go to John chapter 8, please. John chapter 8. I don't always uh, pop out of the current series at Christmas time, but I'm going to do so this year. Uh, one, because I think the next section of 1 Corinthians 3 uh, fits better with prayer week, so I wanted to preserve it for that. And then also some uh, recent conversations and reflections on who Jesus is. I thought it might be good to take time for uh, the Christmas season to think about that. You can see a title up there for the short series, uh, Lord willing, over the next counting today, three Sundays, uh, 10, 17, 24, Worshiping the Christ of Christmas. And I'm going to anchor it in uh, the I am statements in the Gospel of John that Paul or that John uses, uh, records for us of Jesus. There are actually seven that we traditionally recognize where Jesus says, I am, and, and therefore unveils something about himself. He says, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, and the true vine or the vine. So those are the traditional seven, and they uh, reflect elements of how he was presenting himself uh, to the people of Israel as he conducted his earthly ministry. And clearly, since they're recorded us for us in Scripture, they're important for us to, to see if, if, we, if we can sort of the multifaceted revelation of who he is and what he's accomplished. Now, I just mentioned three Sundays, and I listed seven of those. So we're obviously going to be doing a little bit more of a survey of those, uh, those seven, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday and the Sunday after that. This morning, I actually want to look at one that's not normally considered among the traditional I am statements because it has, it actually has no uh, filler, right? I am the bread of life, or I'm the light of the world, or I'm the good shepherd. This one is just sort of a simple and absolute statement by Jesus that actually I think help us understand, helps us understand who Jesus truly is and the significance, the true significance of Christmas. Look at John chapter 8. I want to look at the verse in which it's included, then we'll sort of step back and pick up the context. Look at verse 58. John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. You can see why I say it's sort of an absolute statement. He doesn't say, I am the bread of life or resurrection or door. He simply says, I am. And we might think that odd, right? If, you know, if, uh, if I were talking to somebody and, and I was positioning myself in relationship with them, well, you know, before David Jr. was, I was, right? We tend to say it like that. I was here before him. We wouldn't go, I am, but for Jesus, it is a statement of ultimate, absolute nature as to who he is. And, and I, I trust as we look at some other texts in John, we'll see that. But let's just back up for a moment to understand the context of this, because it's really about their rejection to him. Start in verse 48. I'm just going to read through the passage so you can have a sense of why Jesus is saying what he is. 48, 48, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There, there is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. 
And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And then comes our text. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So I want to take a few moments and look at this amazing claim, because what he's really saying in verse 58 is that he, we, if we put it in theological terms, we would talk about it as the pre-existence of Christ. What Jesus is clearly saying is that the 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 conversation that they're having, they are looking at him as, if I could put it this way, sort of a normal person. You're not yet 50 years old. How could you have seen Abraham? And Jesus wants to take what they're saying and essentially put it aside and, and establish the fact that he's not a normal person. He's the God-man, that he existed before Abraham existed. Before Abraham was, I am. He has a kind of life and existence which predates Abraham, which at this time would be about 2,000 years prior to the time in which they're standing that Jesus existed before Abraham did. And, and that's clearly physically impossible if he's just a mere human. That's their point in verse 57. You're not even 50 yet. How is it possible for you to say that Abraham saw your day? You, you haven't even lived 50 years. He lived 2,000 years ago. What are you claiming? So, so crazy in their minds that all the way through this passage, they're attributing his statements to demonic possession because the claim he's making is not something that a mere mortal could claim. They recognized that. They understood that Jesus was saying something that was either crazy or he is someone completely different than any other human. He's someone unique in that regard. They understood that claim. That's why in verse 59, they tried to kill him. That's what picked up stones to throw at him. Just like in chapter five, when he made him, he called himself the son of God, they recognized that he was saying that he was like God and they tried to kill him. Jesus was very clear in establishing the fact that he was unique as the representative of God because he was, in fact, the God-man. But it's not just pre-existence that Jesus claims. Go over to chapter 17, if you would, please. Chapter 17, because Jesus takes it back past Abraham. Look at 17.5 when he's praying and talking to the Father. 17.5, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus not only claimed to exist before Abraham, he claimed to exist before creation. He had a glory with the Father before the world was, before the world came into existence. Jesus was already existing. He has eternality, not just, he's not just 2,100 years old or not just 3,000 or 4,000 years old. He's actually saying that he existed before anything existed. Before the world was created, he existed with God the Father. I mean, this is an amazing, extraordinary claim. But unless we understand that claim, we can't really understand what Christmas is. 
Right? If we if we don't get that Jesus existed before he walked on this planet, that Jesus existed before the Son of God existed before, if I could put it this way, Jesus of Nazareth, we don't really understand what Christmas is all about. Because Christmas is actually that eternal Son of God coming into this world and becoming man. And let's look at a couple of texts that show us that here in the Gospel of John. Go to John chapter 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And notice what, what is said in verse 13. John 3, 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Do you notice the language clearly of what Jesus is saying here is that he came down from heaven. And again, I'm, 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 I'm not assuming you're, you're mentally slow. I'm just trying to make sure that concepts that we toss around so much at Christmas, we don't miss the true significance of this, right? When we say he existed before creation, and then this text says he descended from heaven, it presupposes someone who existed in heaven, right? He descended from heaven. He was already an he. So when we celebrate Christmas, we are not celebrating the, 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 the beginning of Christ. He never had a beginning. He existed from all eternity past before there ever was anything made, and he descended from heaven. He came down to us from heaven. Look at chapter 6 and verse 38. Jesus makes a very plain statement about this. Chapter 6 and verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Here in this verse, both front and back end of the verse, have this presupposition of existence before earth. I have come down from heaven. So I was in heaven. I've come down from heaven. So he didn't come into existence in his birth at Christmas. He existed before that, and he came down from heaven. And in fact, it says at the end of the verse, the will of him who sent me. So I was, and again, this is sort of a Awkward way to say it, but he was an I in heaven and a me. I came down, the Father sent me. All right, so he didn't all of a sudden come into existence in, in the conception and birth. He existed eternally as the Son of God, and he came down from heaven. He was sent into the world by the Father. Go to chapter 1, verse 14, because now we see a little more specifically how he came down from heaven, or I should say in what way he did. Notice verse 14 of chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory the glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this pre-existent person, the Son of God, came down from heaven and he became flesh. He took to himself a human, a genuine human nature so that the eternal Son of God, who, since God is spirit, had no material nature, took to himself a human nature so that he in himself, one person, could have both fully human and fully divine natures. He became the God-man, one person, two natures, as an evidence of his incarnation. We use that word at this time 
which is, uh, so one of my favorite words, carnivore, right? It's a flesh eater. Carne is flesh, right? And incarnation is the enfleshment of the Son of God. He took to himself human nature so that he could have that nature as a part of his identity as the Son of God. So let me just sort of step back for a moment and make sure I'm I'm setting this up clearly for you because it's important for us to understand, right? The Son of God existed before creation. The Son of God never, never did not exist. That's why, for instance, we can have, even in this Gospel of John, references to him which precede his coming into the world, right? Look at, look at the opening verses. The, Pastor Tracy actually read them this morning. Look at chapter one, verses one through three. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. All right, so verse 14 makes it clear to us, the word who became flesh is the son of God. It's Jesus. So one through three are telling us that he was in the beginning, just like Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning was God. Here, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And notice verse three, all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. You know what that is saying to us? That if you go back to Genesis chapter one and you read creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you know who was doing that? The one who has become the word who became flesh. Because verse three says, all things came into being through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. It was the son of God who was the agent of creation. He is the creator. So when Jesus says in John chapter five, search the scriptures for these are they which speak of me. One way in which they speak of him because he's God, everything that God does in the Old Testament is true of Jesus of Nazareth because he's the God of the Old Testament. In fact, go to chapter 12 and look at what John does here. It's really sort of a fascinating, fascinating text. First time I became aware of it was actually in wrestling with how to, how to talk with a Jehovah's Witness, for instance. And, and help them see that their own translation, at least at the time that I was looking at it, uh, actually confirmed the deity of Christ. Start in verse 38 of John chapter 12. It refers to them not believing in him. Then verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Now notice verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Do you know who the his glory and the him is there? It's the son of God, right? Because look at the end of verse 37. Yet they they were not believing in him. Who's the him? Jesus, right? They were not believing in him. And then verse 41 says, Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke of him. One of the things that's, at the heart of this is that it's talking about Isaiah chapter six and Isaiah sees a vision of Yahweh in the temple, right? And so 
in a lot of our English translations, that Hebrew word Yahweh is translated capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And it's actually also done that in the Jehovah's Witnesses translations. And it translates it that way in this verse. And then the him and the his are also capitalized, recognizing in their own translation that it was actually Jesus that they saw. Isaiah saw the Son of God, and that's Jesus. He is Yahweh, right? He's the true and living God. So John has already showed us as he writes the book that the one who's at the center of the gospel of John is the one who spoke the world into existence. He's the one that was seen in Isaiah's vision in the temple. He's the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God. And so this same Jesus has no hesitation to stand before the religious people of his day and say, I am the I am. I'm God. I existed before Abraham. I existed before the world came into existence. I came down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. And I came and I became man. I took human flesh. I became flesh so that I might be able to carry out the will of him who sent me to do what he sent me into this world to do. So he took to himself a genuine human nature. And it's important to see that he didn't become a new person because he already existed. Right? So that's, that's different than you and me. The normal process of procreation forms a new person Right, A man and a woman reproduce in procreation and something that never existed before comes into existence. We have all of a sudden now a new life. We are a new person. But at the birth of Jesus, a new person did not come into existence. He was already a person. He existed from eternity past. What happened at the incarnation was not the creation of a new person, but the person of the Son of God taking to himself a human nature so that perfectly in himself that one person could be both divine and human nature. Now, occasionally the objection might come up from someone, but but humans are sinners. Why wasn't Jesus a sinner then? And the answer is because it's not an essential component of humanity to be a sinner. Do you realize, I mean, we like to say it, to err is human, to forgive is divine or whatever, but but Adam and Eve existed in the garden without sin, and they were fully human. Sin was an addition to the creation, not an inherent component of it. And way out at the other end, those who are in Christ will be glorified, will be raised to be just like Christ. And you know what we won't have? We won't have a sin nature. We will no longer sin. It is not of the essence of humanity or a human nature to be a sinner. That's why Jesus could take to himself a human nature without taking to himself sin. The reason he wasn't constituted as a sinner was because he's a person who existed before the foundation of the world. And persons are guilty of sin, not natures. And Jesus, the Son of God, never committed any sin and was not guilty of it in any way. So what we have is this incredible miracle that God accomplished through the entry into the world of his son. So you can see the title of the series, it's Worshiping the Christ of Christmas. So what I want to do is step back for a moment and think about what this should produce in terms of us worship. And, and I'm just, I mean, it's like a, 
like a, a, a 10 second recap of a whole series, right? I, I understand worship to involve three components based on the words used in the scriptures. The first is awe. We stand in awe of something with regard to worship. The second is adoration. We actually have a stance of, of love and appreciation. We adore the thing worshiped. But also there's a way in which the words for worship actually involve action or service or response based to it. So awe, adoration, and action. Let me suggest to us why these truths about Christ, that, that he is the preexistent son of God, eternal in his very person who though came down from heaven and became flesh. Why should that produce awe in us? Well, it's because of the majesty and majesty and mystery of the incarnation. I mean, Jesus is fully God and has always been. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna recap really sort of the the the, the biblical theologically sound position in contrast to the way that people have distorted it. There are some people who this this Christmas season would be saying that Jesus was a man who at some point in his earthly existence, the spirit of God came on and he got adopted as God's son. And that's the kind of deity that he has. But John won't allow that. Right? Because before he came into this world, he was God. He didn't become God at some point. He was always God, has never not been God. And if we don't worship a Christ like that, we're not worshiping the Christ of Scripture. So he did not become God at some point. He's actually very God of very God, to use the the, the, the historic way of saying it. He possesses all of the attributes of deity and is equal with the Father and the Spirit. So those views that would talk about calling Jesus a God or some kind of God, but not the true and living God, are all defective and fall short of the worship that he deserves. But he also is fully human and has been since the incarnation. He was not, he was not human before the incarnation. Okay. So, so when, when God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, it was a, an, a, a manifestation. It was sometimes we talk about a theophany or a Christophany, an appearance of God, but, but God was not human. Right? When, when, if you take it to be the son of God who was in the fiery furnace with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, if, if it was the eternal son of God, it was not as a human that he walked with them. At no point was the son of God human until the incarnation. And that's important because sometimes people try to finagle it as some kind of eternally hybrid existence, but, but he's, he's God. And without body, without material part, because he's the infinite spirit in whom all things have their existence. So he's fully human and became so since the incarnation. He did not just appear to be human, but was genuinely human. Some people have wrestled with the idea that God took a human nature to himself, and so they try to act like he just sort of appeared to be, but it actually he became human. He took to himself this human nature. And I think it's important for us to recognize that he did not cease to be human after the resurrection and exaltation. Do you realize today Jesus at the right hand of the Father still is the God-man. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's why the book of Hebrews takes so much time to talk about him 
as being able to be sympathetic with our weaknesses, having endured testing. He can, in fact, give help to those who are tested. It wasn't some kind of a temporary thing where he put on the robe of humanity and then after his resurrection took off the robe and went back to heaven as the son of God without human existence. But he has permanently taken to himself the nature of humanity so that he can be the mediator over all of God's creation. He can be the one who represents to us the glory of God because if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. We have this wonderful privilege. Jesus as God is both one with and distinct from the Father and the Spirit. And this is where I know we like, we like, we like to sort of maybe have Christmas be all of the heart. But I think part of what we really do have to recognize if we're celebrating Christmas in the way the scriptures would present it to us, it is actually the thing that distinguishes biblical Christianity from all of its pretenders. Because Christmas as a truth opens up the window to us of the Trinity. That, it, that there's not just this bland conception of God taught in the Bible, but that God is presented to us as one God in three persons, equal in essence, yet distinct from each other, so that the Son could say, I came down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. Right? He could speak about his Father as another person. And then before he returns to heaven, he says, when I go, I will send the spirit to you. So he's fully God, yet distinguished from the persons of the Godhead, father and spirit. So, so the one true and living God exists eternally as three persons, father, son, and spirit. I mentioned last week, my conversation, brief conversation with a, a Muslim, Muslim man who is willing to grant Jesus status as a prophet and, and a big important prophet who's going to do great things. But, but you unpack the doctrine of the Trinity in the scriptures and that becomes an offense, a stumbling block, just as it would to Jews today. And, and, and the reality of it is, is that's such an, a crucial distinction biblically is that you can't really ever say then that we all worship the same God. Because the true God revealed in scripture exists eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. To deny those distinctions is to deny him as the true and living God. Jesus said that if you don't honor me as you honor the Father, so he has the same, the same position of honor and worship as the Father. He's not less than. He's not separate from as a different category of deity. He is the one true and living God manifested in his distinct person as the Son. And it's really important that we think about Christmas, that we not say that he gave up his deity to become Christ, right? He didn't abandon his attributes. He didn't abandon his deity. Just like it would be wrong to say he didn't take on a robe of humanity and then discard that robe when he went back to heaven, it would be equally wrong to say he laid off the robe of deity, became a man, and then put the robe back on. Because you can't stop being God if you're God. Right? The very nature of deity is self-existence. How can he stop existing as a self-existent one? It's impossible for him to stop being God. At no point 
Did he give up his deity or lay it aside? That's why nowadays, uh, if you've been in our church for a long time, you probably wouldn't even recognize it. But the old Wesley hymn, And Can It Be, used to say, emptied himself of all but love. Right? So, so he emptied himself of everything, giving up all of his attributes except love. If you, if you check in our hymn books, uh, we actually sing it, humbled himself and came in love, which is a better reflection of what Philippians chapter two is teaching. Yes, he humbled himself. But he did not abandon his deity. He didn't somehow leave it behind or stop being God. It's a mystery how he, in his person, combined both deity and humanity in a way that we see, in some senses, the deity veiled, right? As a, as a human growing in wisdom and knowledge, right? He, he, at the, Logos, the divine nature, never ceased to be omniscient. But in terms of his human consciousness was actually growing in knowledge and wisdom. Right? We could spend eternity trying to plumb the depths of that. That's why I say awe. There's a part of that we have to stand back and go, that is too large for me to fully understand. I need to appreciate and consider the glory of that kind of miracle that took place. Jesus is one person with two natures. He's not a, and, and again, I want to, I'm trying to be clear. He's not a, he's not a divine person and a human person, which sometimes people carelessly talk about as if he's two people. He's a divine person and then he's a human person. No, he's one person with two distinct natures. He doesn't alternate back and forth like, say, Jekyll and Hyde between being divine person, human person. No, he's one person, existing from eternity past, who took to himself a human nature in that one person. And those natures remain distinct from each other. Ununited, but are united in his person. I mean, years ago, I mean, 40 some years ago, um, I didn't hear the sermon firsthand, uh, but the guy worked with in the dormitories, uh, came back from hearing a sermon on the virgin birth of Christ by, it actually, unfortunately, was by one of our professors at a church in town. And and he talked about the miracle of the incarnation being that in every cell of Jesus was 50% divine, 50% human. So, so that every part of him was merged in that way. And, and I think it was an, uh, an accidental error, but it's heresy nonetheless. Because you would actually be now having divine, human, and human divine, right? You'd actually have Jesus be something other than us because you and I don't have a human divine nature. He was made of flesh like us so that he could be a sacrifice for us. He wasn't made some kind of uh, demigod like the Greek philosopher. Right? He wasn't Hercules, who was offspring of, of deity and humanity mingled into one kind of hybrid. Jesus remained distinctly God, distinctly human, while being one person so that he could genuinely participate in our humanity and could genuinely be the sacrifice for our sins. I mean, but even if you just think it out, if God's life is self-existent, then no cell of his body would ever die if it had deity in it because God can't die. It may have been a fascinating way to think about things, but it goes way past what the scriptures would say. He is truly human. He can therefore experience death on our behalf. So, 
So let's not lose the wonder of what happened at Christmas. Right? It's just, it's, it's stunning to think that the God who spoke the world into existence took to himself the, the nature of humanity so that he could redeem the world that rebelled against him. And that leads me into the adoration, the humility and ministry of his coming. I mean, Jesus subjected himself to the frailties of humanity. As Pastor Ben prayed, I mean, here's the maker of heaven and earth, tired, hungry. God has never experienced those in his deity. But as the God-man, he could feel for us in our human frailties. The creator lived among the brokenness of his creation. He walked among sinners. He saw the nature of that brokenness. He modeled perfect obedience and sacrificial service to his father amidst it and to others. He knows from experience that our frame is simply dust. He has felt without failing the full force of temptation because he never gave into it. He witnessed and sympathized with the effects of the fall, sickness and sorrow and death. He watched people that he loved die He watched people that he loved grieve over those deaths and he stood alongside of them and felt that pain and had compassion on them. He looked out at sinners and he saw them struggling with their sin and his heart was moved with compassion so that he moved toward them to redeem them. He stood in front of people who were weary and heavy laden and said, I will give you rest because Jesus understood these things and therefore he serves as a perfect priest for us. He serves as one who has compassion on us in a way that was, is unique to his humanness because he's walked among us. But even if you think about what he did there, the, the kind of active response that should happen to us, I think that we think about this miracle is if I could, I want, and I want to make sure we understand this because I think it's important not to lose this. What Jesus did in becoming fully human should produce in us a proper respect for the dignity and sanctity of human life. Right, that, that we actually should understand more fully how human life bears the image of God because Christ is the express image of God's person and is going to be, if I could put it this way, the, the, the stamp to which we are going to be conformed. When we are glorified, we are going to be glorified and conformed, Philippians 3 says, to the glory of his resurrected body. That Jesus is not going to, in fact, someday discard humanity as, well, no, throw off all that earthly existence stuff and become something purer and better as a spirit. But the hope in front of us is to have the perfected human existence that was actually created for us in the garden. We're not going away from the garden. We're going past the garden to the new creation. And that's important to understand because periodically people will think about human existence in ways that treat the material nature of our existence as somehow evil. Right? That, that the body is sinful and, and if we're really in tune with God, will actually just sort of transcend the body to the spirit in some way. And here comes Jesus, fully human, fully embodied, 
living exactly the way God made humanity to live, that he was a perfect human, that he was not somehow uh, contaminated by physical existence. He was not uh, putting on just a show of physical existence, but he was fully human because there's something good and dignified and sacred about the image of God reflected in human existence. That it's not, it's not inherently wrong to be embodied, enfleshed, right? And the the hangover of that is really the hangover of Greek philosophy that, that sort of says the material is worldly and sinful and the immaterial is true. It's right, it's good. The scriptures will not accept that. Our existence is one in a material creation and as image bearers, really at the pinnacle of that, which Jesus clearly demonstrates to us. Again, I heard a sermon one time where a guy said, are you you primarily a spirit that inhabits a body or a body that has a spirit? And here's what the answer should be. None of the above. We're not a body that has a spirit or a spirit that has a body. We're a human, both body and spirit. There's nothing, we're not not like imprisoned in a body and someday God's going to let us free. Right? The, The whole hope and promise of the resurrection is that we'll be given a glorified body. Heaven isn't a bunch of people flying around with wings playing harps. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's the glory of the resurrection, the creation of God, of a kind of perfect environment where we can live for him as he intended us to. That's why when we feel the groans in our body, when we lay a body in the grave, we shouldn't say, I understand what we mean, but we shouldn't say, this is not the person. They're in heaven. As if they were just a spirit inhabiting that body. We could say, this is no longer going to be the body of humiliation that suffered the effects of death. There's coming a day when God's going to raise this body and that person that we're remembering today will be raised in victory over sin and the grave. But the body's not just some shell to cast off. It's actually the gift of God that we have this wonderful human existence made as an image bearer of him and therefore should be recognized as that. The Lord's becoming flesh means that any view that treats the body or materiality, if I could put it that way, is inherently evil, is contrary to the word and will of God. Jesus of Nazareth was God in human flesh, appointed as the one who will be God's mediator over all creation. He is going to be the one that God has exalted over everything and in fact has been appointed as the judge of all the living, the one who one day will judge in righteousness. And the proof of it was that when Jesus died, he rose from the dead and has been made both Lord and Christ. And that right now he sits at the Father's right hand as the one who will save everybody who comes to God through him because he is the one who came down from heaven to provide this redemption for us through Christ. The incarnation is a profound miracle worthy of deep contemplation. Christmas should be a joyous, happy time. I mean, it ought to be a celebration as we do. But it shouldn't be that this miracle just sort of gets assumed and and set to the side because it really is the turning point of the ages that the Son of God came to become the Son of Man 
so that we might have redemption through him. It is the miracle of Christmas that God became man to remove the sins of mankind so that we could be restored to fellowship with him through the sacrifice of himself on the cross. It's amazing. It really is something that ought to be inspiring of awe, but also should capture our hearts that God, that, that God's son would humble himself so that we could be God's children, that he could serve even to the point of death so that we might be freed from death. Let's worship the Christ of Christmas this year. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to provide salvation through him. And Lord Jesus, we want to exalt and praise you this morning because you were willing to take to yourself a human nature so that you might bear our sins in your body on the cross, that you might carry our griefs and our sorrows, that you might endure the chastisement of our peace and that through your wounds, we could be healed. We are grateful today that you identified with us in our humanity so that you could redeem us and make us your brothers and sisters in Christ, that we could be called sons and daughters of the Most High because you came. And that one day, when you return, we will see you we will be able to touch and bow before, give thanks to our risen Lord, that you will dwell among us and be our God, and we will be your people, that you will establish your throne on this earth and rule in righteousness, that by the power of your might, you will vanquish sin and death. We give praise to you. Lord, help us to reverence your name as we worship this Christmas. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.